Hi there, thanks for joining us. My name's Johnny Reed, and you're listening to the Christians in Sport podcast. Today is a really special interview. We're here at the home of England football, St George's Park, where all the men's, women's and disability teams are housed. And we're here with Michael Johnson. We recorded just a few weeks out from the World Cup with excitement in the air as people buzzed around getting ready. John O. Michael Johnson is currently the lead club engagement for the FA. Uh, he'll explain more about that in our interview. He also coaches and supports the England national teams from under 15 to under 21 level. He consults for UEFA in a number of programs, programs like Career Transition. Uh, you'll hear what he has to say about retirement later. It's really helpful. Uh, women in leadership uh, and on their executive program. He also consults for FIFA in their coaching masterclass. Uh, as we record, he'll mention it uh, just a few weeks before the World Cup. He's just come back from one of these events in Geneva. Uh, John O played professionally for many years with Derby County and Birmingham. He represented Jamaica in international football. He then went on to become the head coach at Guyana. Uh, he was a sporting director at Limerick Football Club in Ireland before coming to the England setup as a coach for the under-21s. Wow, it's a great CV and it's a really good interview. Uh, he's well worth listening to as he explains how his faith and his work and his sport all connect together. Uh, so let's join Dano. Graham Daniels now, our general director, as he speaks with Michael Johnson. John, welcome to the Christians in Sport podcast. We ask the same question, first question, every time. So here it is. What does it mean for you to have your sport, your work, and your faith connected to play connected? Yeah. Um, it means everything, Dano, in, in terms of um, who I am as an individual. And if I have to be true to me, which I've always been, um, then for me, my faith has to be upfront and foremost. And that's more in an authentic way in terms of how you carry yourself, the character, your behaviours. Um, and, and so when I look at my career and, and where we are now, I don't do coincidences. I don't do, oh, this is by chance. Oh, it's that I always think there's a rationale and there's a purpose for everything. And I understand my purpose and my purpose is, is all about God. It's, it, I'm a God-fearing man. I, my life revolves around him. And so when the opportunities of these kind of opportunities to come and work at your Englands, your Guyanas, your Derbys, wherever it may be, I'm very thankful. But I also know it's not just about the sport I play. We're using this sport to really touch people's lives. You've managed that for many years and the balancing act in what we might call a secular culture of having a Christian faith and being thoroughly engaged in that culture in professional football is a hallmark of yours. Mm. Let's get specific straight away. Uh, here we are on a, on a wet morning at St. George's <laughs> Park uh, and you've just flown in. I say, oh, where were you, where were you yesterday then, John? He said, oh, I've just flown in from Geneva. Yeah. So <laughs> you've flown in from two days on the... Ma coaching, mentoring on the Masters for international players. And I think I'm right in saying to be on that course, a player has to have played international football and played in the top league in his country. Now, without betraying too many confidences, uh, give us a feel of, of that part of your day job as your consultancy uh, for UEFA. What were you doing? It's, it, it's been amazing. Um, so first and foremost, they were graduating. So it's the UEFA... Um, number three, I was number two. 
and you're right, it was international players, but you've had to play at the top level in your country. So there's a certain criteria which brings a lot of well-known footballers from the male and female game together. Names like Gilberto Silva, um, Kaka just graduated, or Shavin, um, Yorid Yorkaev. So some really big names. So the network is growing and growing every year. And obviously for me to be part of that, not only am I humbled, but I'm really thankful to God. Um, especially where you know where you're coming from and to be standing amongst your peers and not only graduating, but in this week, being able to mentor and give back in terms of the experiences, the opportunities for some of those that have just graduated. There's a certain anxiety about what the future might bring. And so it's great with my experiences to go and speak to them and talk to them about how this potentially could open doors and next steps. So yeah, you're right, I've just literally flown in and it's, it's been an amazing 48 hours. Interesting on that front for me, uh, Jono, because though you have a, an incredible job in England football, which we'll explore in this, and though you have these significant consultancies like this UEFA one and FIFA, uh, we've, we've interviewed on previous occasions and, and you've indicated that some of the hallmarks of, of, of racism in professional football, you think in some ways restricted a career of a black player uh, who's got the capacity to do what you're doing now. I don't necessarily need to go back and dig all of that out with you, but in hindsight now in the roles that you're in, how do you perceive that situation these days in football? It's, it's improving. It's definitely improving slowly. There's discussions around the world. There's discussions here at the FA. This week we heard about the FA Diversity Code. There's Premier League initiatives. And what I would say, it's still very slow. Um, you know, you, you look at the manage, management level now, we're still at around 4%. And you look at senior leadership, that's 2%. And when you consider that 44% of players playing through all the leagues in England, from the Premier League down to League 2, is in and around 44% then you see the disparity, you see the massive drop off. And we have to find out why. And, and that's where I still see there's work to be done. If we want a game that is really truly reflective of Monday Great Britain and reflective of the industry that we all love and work in. So, so you, would it be fair to say that you're seeing at international level, at England level, significant development and ownership of this responsibility to bring people through to leadership? but it may not yet have, have, the rubber hasn't hit the road in, in the day-to-day -day game, as it were, in clubs. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, whilst FA are doing some really great initiatives around it, I still think there's more work and more real purpose and that bullseye needs to be hit rather than the, the sort of work that we do, what floats in and around it, but we're not quite hitting the bullseye. And I think it's really important to learn from the experiences of so many managers of colour, coaches of colour, players that have come out, that have tried to aspire to be where they've, where they've wanted to be, but for some reason have not quite got there, have not felt like the industry wants them to get there. You know, how can we learn from those experiences to better be placed next time in terms of making sure that the players that are playing the game now don't have the experiences that others have had? 
certainly Dion Dublin, um, who's on in my other role, as it were, in life with Cambridge United. Dion's on the board uh, with us, and uh, amazing. Actually, actually, well, first and foremost, his sheer ability, his conceptual ability, his incisive ability to understand the business of football is huge. He's a, he's a board member and a huge part of that board and leader of it. But his insight into the issues that restrict players as they move into management and senior positions is, is significant. Well, what's encouraging for us in this podcast, Jono, is the fact that, that you've been outspoken on these issues, but in such a way that it's elegant and dignified and classy. And you've spoken from increasingly from positions of authority within the game. It's a, it's a wonderful thing to see. Um, can we go to the day job then from yeah. there? So good. In from Geneva, uh, crazy conversations uh, with all sorts of people. Um, just as, as one throwback to that, I don't need the exact details of a Kaka conversation, but what does it l look like to be mentoring world-class players as they transition from the game? Give, give us a story that's anonymous of the kind of thing you'd be doing. Yeah. And you're right, there are players that have won World Cups and European Championships and some of these players will come and ask um, about my experiences having retired from the game literally a decade ago now. And, and so there's quite a bit of knowledge in there. And so what you try and do is help them in terms of what does the future look like? Because some of them now are just coming through their master's degree, which is a huge achievement for some of them. And some of them, the road might not be as smooth, given the names, given the history, as what they may think it should be. And so it's preparing them for that life after football and preparing them that they must keep moving, they must keep going to see uh, managers, coaches that they know, uh, must keep learning and developing themselves because it, it may not be as they think, I'm going to get a role next week or in the next two months. And sometimes players get despondent during that journey between finishing and acquiring a role. So it's just using those experiences and those contacts and networks to keep them on that real road to navigate them to the next destination, which hopefully will be a sporting director role or a leadership role somewhere within the sport that they love. For a supporter watching this, we have a mixture. Lots of pros watch this, but competitive players watch it and supporters watch it. And of course, you'll know very well that, that somebody who's a supporter listening or watching this is saying, what? Somebody of that stature, that fame, that importance, actually nervous, yeah. nervous about their job when they've earned so much money in their lives. Speaking to that, that is an issue, but people will never understand that. Why, why does that happen to a very famous player who's got loads of yeah. money? And, and again, it's, it's a really good question. But once, I think my faith has really helped me to understand that if for 90 minutes you're a footballer, but behind the 90 minutes, behind the, the shirt, once you take the shirt off, that person's first and foremost is a human being. And I think as human beings, we all go through emotions. And so whilst you might put that shirt on and feel like a hero and a superhero, you're gonna to have to take it off. And a lot of players dread the day when they have to take it off for good because they lose a lot of power that comes as associated with that shirt. So now you're dealing with the human being, mm. the person. 
And I think it's important that we remember all the time that this person is the same as you, who has emotions, has fears, has doubts, anxiety. Regardless of where we see them in terms of the financial side of the game, they still have the human feelings that go through those ranges of ups and downs. And that's where I, the course, others will try and capture them in those ups and downs because we have some kind of understanding of what they're going mm. to go through. Mm. And it is a real um, high when you're playing, but then it's the low. Mm. And that's where we try and help them in terms of building back up their self-confidence, their self-worth. You're not just a footballer, you have got something now to offer the world. Mm. Uh, John, that's fascinating, the shirt analogy, brilliant. So when players have to take that shirt off for good, yeah. That's a drama moment, a dramatic period in life. Straight back at you then. When you knew the shirt was coming off for good, tell us when that was and what role your alternative vision of self, your Christian faith had in this. It's a, hmm, it's a good question. I likened it to like, a, um, like when you love somebody or you, know, you have a real devout love and that's all you've seen yourself with or to have. And then that gets ripped away from you. And I likened it to that experience that there's nothing that you can do with your career because there comes a time and there comes an age where you're at, where you know it's, it's on the downward spiral. And once that gets tugged away from you, then who are you if you don't have your faith? Because you, your identity is in, I'm a footballer. This is all I've known. Once that curtain gets drawn and it's the last time you wear that shirt, then there's a real battle about who you are now. And if you don't have a real comfortableness in who you are, for me, it was around my faith. Then you go on for the next seasons, years, still defining yourself as a former footballer, but you're not comfortable about, okay, who are you though? That's in your past. Who are you now? Because you're still attached to that Saturday afternoon, to that shirt, but you're no longer playing the sport. And so there's a real um, challenge issue around the identity of a football player once they're coming out the game and the comfortableness to really say, this is me. In your case, in your specific case, you'd have gone through that, taking the shirt off. Yeah. Uh, not just at the end of a career, of course, but times of injury or even deselection when you couldn't get in a team, which wouldn't be often, uh, but that would have happened. Um, your faith in this process, give us a couple of moments then on, on actually coming to a faith uh, during a playing career, because... It used to be quite unusual. It's, no, it's pretty normal now in football. Yeah. There's so many people of Christian faith and indeed other faiths in, in professional football. The taking the shirt off part uh, as a younger man, how did your faith emerge in professional soccer? Um, I was always aware of my faith. Came from a real um, Christian upbringing um, with my grandparents. They were Pentecostal mm. um, churchgoers. And as a youngster, you know, there was no, you might be going, you are going. <laughs> <laughs> I 
And that was good, but it also carried its own resentment a little bit. As I started to go through my teen years, I started to not rebel, but you know, football's on a Sunday morning. I'm going to go football now. I'm old enough. I'm not a young toddler anymore where I have to be, you know, looked after. And so I, I left the church environment, but I was always aware. And then as you go through your career, you get caught up in the world. And I was around 29, 30 when I signed for Derby County. And um, me and somebody that we know very well, Darren Moore, I'm sure you'd be fine with me mentioning this. We roomed together and um, Darren was really strong and, and, and in terms of his faith and, you know, me and him would have discussions. And over the course of the seasons, those discussions really started to touch me in a way that, you know, I started to come back into the church environment and remember speaking to Darren and we, you know, Darren was really good in terms of helping me in the world with football, never judged me, but always used to drop a word in. And over a period of time, a couple of seasons, those words started to really take a, a hold and impact my life for the good. And then I decided it's time I returned back to what I knew as a toddler, um, but it drifted away. And it was so special when I went back and and gave my life to Christ again. And um, I've never looked back since. The impact of that, um, a player like Darren Moore, now a, a well-known manager and a highly respected man in professional football. What strikes me is the, about the way you talk about Darren and indeed what one admires in people of Christian faith throughout the game these days is that ability to be, I don't know, I'd call it good at being normal. Mm -hmm. uh, good at being caring, kind, generous of spirit, interested in other people more than yourself. And it's almost in that process your faith is seen but not pushed too hard. 100%. Would that be a fair reflection of an approach that you think is appropriate? A hundred percent. I totally um, would agree with that statement. I think for me it's around your life and the way that you conduct your life, the way that you act, the way that you walk, talk, um, the patience that you have, the, the, the willingness to show empathy and understand um, and engage with, with others from any walk of life. And I think that there in itself has led many who I've come into touch with to say, there's something about mm. Michael that I'd like to explore mm. a bit more further. Um, and that's where potentially there might be an opportunity to discuss your faith, as opposed to, as, as, as we know, you know, particularly in this environment, it's, it might be not be the best choice for you sometimes to be ramming something down because mm. it might be too harsh for some. But I think the way that you live, the way that you conduct your life um, will be evident. You know, they, the Lord says that I, you would know them by mm. the fruit. Mm. And I think that is so true in terms of the industry that we, we operate in, it's about more about your conduct. Yes. Sorry for interrupting. I hope you're enjoying our chat with Jono. We'll get back to it in just a minute. 
Uh, before then, I wanted to tell you about Game Day. I wonder if you've signed up for it yet. Game Day is our weekly devotion for sports people, sports people young and old, amateur sports people and elite sports people uh, who get alongside it as well. They can choose what day they want to get it. Uh, and then you get about 500 words in your inbox or on your podcast app. And you can focus on what God has to say to you in your sport. Thousands of sports people get it each week, and you can join them by signing up at christiansinsport.org.uk forward slash game day. That's christiansinsport.org.uk forward slash game day. It takes less than 30 seconds, uh, and we've got some great series coming up. Let's head back to our interview with Michael Johnson. What we might call the day job, because consultancies with UEFA and FIFA. Yeah, uh, part of your life, but the actual day-to-day job now is is an absolutely fascinating one, which I think people are going to be uh, really interested in understanding. The formal title is engagement and player lead yeah. for England. Yeah. And my understanding from watching you and talking to you on this is that what it looks like every day is that you're you're really visiting clubs all the time for the youngsters who are in the England setup, looking out for them, looking after them. Broadly speaking, that's what happens. Can you pin that down a bit for us? Because it's a fascinating job, which I'm sure people wouldn't have heard about outside the professional game. Yes, you're right. Um, so the, the, the role's called the club and player relations lead. So with the club, it's basically, as you just mentioned, looking after our players that are in camp, yeah. who have been selected, um, and then going into clubs and making sure, obviously, when they come into camp, the experience of them coming in is, is a good one, is the feedback right, but also trying to find out from the coaches or the clubs that I visit, is there any other talent within their academies that may have been missed? And some coaches will say to me, well, you know, there's a good under-15 player or 17 player, fancy taking a session in the academy. So sometimes I would deliver in the evening program to actually have a look more on talent ID, potentially it's something that we may have missed. Um, but then also capturing so much rich data from coaches. There's so many conversations around players that sometimes if it's not captured at certain clubs, it goes missing. So how can we capture those conversations with, with coaches? How can we bring something from the FA in terms of a CPD opportunity? We do that much research here, that there's so much we can give back to the game. And how do we then find out what's in their pathway? And so that's where the relationship with the club is now being thought of and driven by our technical director, John McDermott, and also the head of talent recruitment, which is Steve Morrow. They've got a real emphasis of improving those relationships with the clubs, because at the end of the day, Ultimately, England can only be England because we take the players from their clubs. So how do we embed that relationship? And it's not just about the top clubs. We're talking right the way through the pyramid of English football. Mm. Well, again, I've got a, a degree of personal experience of that as, as a, a young boy in a League One setup at Cambridge who's in the pathway. Yeah. Uh, and, and you think, wow, there is a depth of inquiry that's going on here and identification how, how current is this? Is your role a brand new role? Was it, it, did it exist before? No, it's, it's really new. Um, it's new. It's new and it's driven from both John and Steve. Um, from their experience, particularly John's at Tottenham. He was the academy manager at Tottenham and 
there was things that he says was loose in terms of the relationship between him as the Tottenham Hotspur um, Academy Manager in the FA. Um, there was no collection of data in terms of the conversation that all those coaches were having. The relationship wasn't quite right in terms of how we selected or deselected and how that player was left feeling. Um, there was no real communication with parents. Um, and so he said he wanted somebody to really come in and drive those discussions, you know, try and tighten it and get those relationships a lot more firmer. So when we go back to, um, to call a player up, that player feels welcome, the family's included, the club's happy. And that really bodes well for a really good player coming in and being the best version of who that person can be based on those relationships. We know the world revolves around relationships. Um, and so it's important that we really go that extra yard to make sure we cement those relationships and make sure players know that we really care for them and clubs as well. How different is that? You were the head coach of the 21s. Um, that's hands-on, obviously, that's in the lives of players and no doubt their mums and dads when they take the shirt off, yeah. as you put it uh, excellently. How different is this experience now? Because it's far more eclectic. You're seeing more people and travelling more. For me, it's, it's a wonderful experience. It's completely different from the 21s, where I was more grass in terms of a coach. Um, but what this has gave me is another side to me. It's opened up a talent ID side, it's opened up an awareness of the pathway. I can talk now from an under 15 coming in right the way to the under 21s mm. coming in. And it's my job to be across that so that when I come into a club like Cambridge, I can sit there and articulate myself about a player what's under 16, mm. but then also have a conversation about somebody what's under 20 yeah. and talk to you about how they both found the camp. Is that what you see when, you, when you're training these players every day? Mm. Are they comfortable because is that what you know these players do? Mm. And they're relating that to when they come in camp to see if we've actually got a player who's, who's mm. enjoying both sides of the coin. If, mm. if he's enjoying Cambridge and he behaves like this, but then he comes in yeah. to England, is there something that we're missing yeah. that you may be able to help me with? Mm. And so it's really opened up a different side to me in terms of, yes, I was coaching day to day, now it's more around the talent ID, developing those real strong relationships around the game, which I find really exciting. And I do get coaching because, mm. as I said, some, co some clubs will go, why don't you just take the under-16s this afternoon or this evening or the under-18s mm. in the morning? Why don't you just do a CPD with all our coaches and talk about a strategy, what England have researched? And, and so for me, every day is a different challenge. Uh, on that front then, uh, let's press on your own Jamaica career and head coach in Guyana. Yep. So, so as I've said earlier, your eclectic CV uh, lends itself to so many skills that you've picked up over the years. Firstly, how did the getting picked for Jamaica happen initially? Obviously, somebody's spotted you when you're playing club football. How did that happen? It was amazing, actually. It, it came at a time when... Um, I realised it was never going to happen for England. Mm. As an 18-year-old, I was invited down to Lillyshaw, the best of the best. That's what they called it. I think there's about 40 odd players, but I never made the final cut. Mm. And so I waited and waited, but never got the call. So just after the 98 World Cup, um, I got a call from Jamaica and they knew about my dual nationality. And they said, we've, we've had you watched and we'd like you to come in. 
And of course, I jumped at the chance to realise it's not going to happen for England. So why not have an opportunity of playing at um, the Gold mm. Cup, mm. which is in the States, um, World Cup qualifiers, which, is, which was taking place. And I did. And it was a fantastic, um, fantastic experience to go around the world, Brazil, Mexico, play against some fabulous teams and experience international football. You know, that period then as an 18-year-old where you, you're good enough to go to Lillishall, which means you're in the top crowd and you don't make the cut. Uh, does, does a scar of that remain? Um, no, not really, Dana. Mm. Because I think what happened after that um, actually really helps to get over that in terms of your own career. Yes. So you go and, and you get that professional contract, you move, you play in the Premier League, you then get international experiences. So that overtakes that. And I think the final one for me um, was whilst I wasn't good enough to play for England as a player, what I've now proven to myself is that you're good enough to, to represent England as a coach. Mm. And that's been a real, you know, cement that, yes, you mm. was good enough to one day represent your country. Well, here's another question then along those lines, and they don't have to be yes, no, and you certainly don't have to agree with me, as in the last case. Therefore, um, in terms of coming to, to a faith, a personal faith, you've grown up with one, but you came to a personal faith, 29, 30. What would you say was the initial substantial impact of that on the journey that's brought you to this point at this age, because you were still playing at that stage. Yeah. Did it, for example, has it influenced your desire to be a coach or uh, a sporting director? How would you capture the influence of your faith on your subsequent career? It, it's been astronomical. Um, my faith has definitely been the catalyst of where I am right. and who I am today, without a shadow of doubt. There was times, Dana, when I went through um, not only life, but sorry, not only career, but your life being told it's going to be tough for obvious reasons. You, yeah, you, you're a black man and there's not many black coaches and managers out there. Um, and that was coming to a, a stage when I was literally coming to retire out of the game. But during that time I was looking to retire out of the game, I'd recently really um, hold, started to hold on to my faith as I mentioned. And so the journey of me retiring and experiencing tough times was locked into a time when my faith was really strong. It's strong now, but I was just really bedding into it. And that got me through a period where there was nothing happening. I couldn't get a managerial job. I'd been applying and couldn't get on anything, but my faith was really strong and held me firm. And Darren Moore, again, held me firm. There was a time on my pro license, and I know he don't mind me telling, we laugh at this now, when one particular morning I was weak and um, we were supposed to go to Switzerland. And I said, Maura, I'm not going. And it was the last leg of my pro license after 18 months, the last two months. And Maura rang me up in Nottingham and I said, are you not coming down? I'm supposed to I said, I'm not going anywhere this morning. What's the point? And he literally said, if you don't get out of your bed, I'm literally going to come up to Nottingham and drag you out. Now, 
you don't want Darren Moore dragging you out of your bed anyway. <laughs> He's a giant. So I literally said, oh, I'm on my way. It's the best decision I made mm. because obviously you qualify, you get through, and then you go again. Yeah. Um, so basically what I'm trying to say is without my faith, I wouldn't be stood here because I would have given in. And also, I felt the Lord lead me to something that, that I was enough for him. And within him, it will open up. Mm. What I have to do is really trust him. Yeah. Trust in him. And so in that period where there was nothing, I just continued to trust in him. Mm. And actually started to grow where I would be my own manager. I would be my own sporting director. I didn't need the industry to rubber stamp who I was because the Lord had already rubber stamped me for who I was. Mm. And within that, I started to operate in a real confidence and a real energy. And I, I am convinced that those traits of confidence and energy um, and exuberance is exactly what's brought you to where you are today, where the UEFA somebody goes, something about him, I need to mm. get him involved in our organisation. Peer support, you've mentioned Darren Moore a couple of times here. I know you were extremely good friends with the late Cyril Regis, mm. uh, and, and to this day are, are very involved uh, in the uh, community trust, the Cyril Regis Trust uh, in the Midlands uh, through his wife, Julia and the group there. Um, there are a number, as I intimated earlier, compared to 20 years ago, 15 years ago, where it was slightly odd to be a Christian in the professional game. Now it's pretty normal. Yeah. I mean, it's a dramatic shift in the culture at all levels of professional football now. You're involved in, in you've supported so many of your own uh, peers, I might say, but younger people, uh, other coaches right across uh, British football, actually. Uh, again, you don't need to name names on this because it's for them to talk about it uh, more as a public figure on this. How important is peer support to people in professional football, professional sport, when they want to be good pros yeah. and sustain their Christian faith as part and integrated to it? Yeah, it's it's... It's something that is coming up and really prevalent now, um, particularly with the explosion of social media as well. And I think it's important for, for youngsters, um, coaches, those just coming out of the game, to learn um, from the experiences of those that have literally trod that path and navigated that pathway particular at a time when, as you mentioned, you know, the, the 90s and early two, 2000s, it wasn't a pleasant place to be um, a Christian um, because the changes were, were quite harsh back then. I think what we have now is a lot more understanding, a lot more interest around personal well-being. Um, and, and so it's okay for you now to be who you choose to be, who you want to be. Um, but I still think with that, there's that, there's that transition, there's that understanding and navigating the whole industry, the, the things that are going to be 
in your eye shop just because of the nature of the industry. You know, we know that now football is something that is, is global. So if you play for, you know, wherever you play, you're going to be well-known. With that well-known, becomes a lot of fame. How do you handle that as a youngster if you don't really know you and you don't really understand what you're going to be opening up? And I think this is where the experiences of those that have travelled can speak to you in a real um, understanding, um, less convicted way. I think it's so important that, you know, Christians of sport, particularly the elders actually give back to the youngsters in that way because they're going to face issues that they may not have the experiences, the tools to understand how you're navigating. Mm. Well, it's been quite marvellous to watch over that 20 or 30 years. Uh, many examples of what you've just described of, of parents who might have a child as you were who came from a Christian home who are hoping that when their daughter or son find themselves in these performance pathways, they're thinking, how is my child going to balance the faith they've grown up with, the Christian faith they've grown up with, with the demands of professional sport? And increasingly, I've no doubt you've seen this, the, the influence of senior players and coaches in saying, oh, no, no it's, the world has changed. Yeah. It, it's, it's fine to express your faith because it's a sign of your holistic well-being and it's welcomed here. You must have seen that with mums and dads at times yeah, wanting to talk to you. Absolutely. It's, it's fascinating you mentioned that. Um, even recently, there was a, a parent that came into camp and it was great for them to have an understanding that there was somebody within the, 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 the FA who they literally was like, oh, I've seen you on Christians and Sport. And that real comfort that came from that they saw somebody who represented them and was quite comfortable in their own mm. in their own shoes and just having a conversation with them mm. but also then them saying oh you know please do speak to my my youngster it'd be mm. great if you could share some some mm. words of wisdom with them mm -hmm. and and that's a special to, for somebody to say that as a parent mm -hmm. saying to you mm. please share, that's a big thing mm. you know it's, you don't just have any and anybody saying oh can you share into my child mm. And so when you have that bestowed upon you, it's, it's powerful. That takes you full circle, doesn't it? Because your, your parental, grandparenting, yeah. Pentecostal home. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and you find yourself now as a, as, a, as a role model, a caring, kind, highly professional person at the top level of English football, able to give back yeah. across the board uh, mm. to others. It must be a lovely feeling. Before we draw to a close, uh, Jono, um, you know, here we are uh, recording what, three weeks before the World Cup starts. That's when we're uh, here at St. George's yeah. Park for this conversation. Uh, you know, you can't say too much, obviously, but uh, <laughs> uh, how do you see it shaping? I think, obviously, the, the last few tournaments have done, have done really well. And I'm sure Gareth and the team should be confident, will be confident going in going into this uh, World Cup, I think, I think for every England fan, every England fan is, is really, um, really desperate for success. Everybody keeps reminding us of the 66. Um, but for me, of course, we want to win it. Of course, I'd love nothing more than to win it. But you just want a team to be really representative of, of us as a nation, as a country. Um, 
not just on the field, but also off the field. And you want the fans also to conduct themselves in a way that is really bestowed upon what we expect. Mm. And so whilst I understand uh, this is something we, we hope we win, I think for me, it's the whole piece in terms of how do we, how do we look on the, on the world stage as a nation? How are we re represented? Not just by what we see on the pitch, but also that what we see off the pitch. And wherever that takes us, if that is successful, then I'd like to think we'd all be proud of, of the, that mm. nation. And that would be us. Super answer, John. And not, not at all political. And for me, representative of, of what we've watched here at St. George's Park, uh, the developments of the elite player performance plan over the last decade, both the desire to create players technically better footballers, but I love the second part of the EPPP, more rounded human beings, much yeah. better cared for, more than a footballer, more than the shirt. Yeah. Um, what we've discussed today has captured that very beautifully for me and what the whole England setup looks like because the privilege of knowing a number of people in it of faith, Christian faith and who, those who would say they don't have Christian faith, there's a yeah. there's a value system in place here, which is excellent. So uh, super capture. Well, Michael Johnson, thank you very much indeed. Pleasure, a real pleasure interviewing you today. Thanks, John. That was super. Thanks so much to John for his time, sorting us a space to record at St George's as well. Um, do let us know any feedback you have uh, what really helps us is if you uh, let us know how you're finding the podcast just drop us an email to podcast at christiansinsport.org.uk find us on social media hey and this really does help us if you can leave a rating and a review if you're listening on either Apple Podcasts or Spotify uh, it just means more people can find this and other podcasts we have in our library Finally, uh, if you're not yet and you'd like to get connected more fully into the work of Christians in sports, you can then connect with other sports people like you. Michael uh, mentioned the peer groups uh, of those elite football coaches and players. Um, if you're in the elite world of sport, get in touch with us. But also, if you're an amateur like me, uh, you're a student or you're maybe a parent of some elite pathway, get in touch with us. Just head to christiansinsport.org.uk forward slash networks and you can sign up today uh, for the relevant network for you. They help connect others in similar situations together. Uh, give some time in the Bible uh, and a chance to pray together. So uh, do head to christiansinsport.org.uk forward slash networks and you can sign up today. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast. We'll be back again uh, in a few weeks' time uh, with another great interview. We'll see you soon. Bye-bye.